Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, let's get into Habakkuk chapter uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. As you know, we've been working our way through Habakkuk, and we find ourselves in chapter 2 today. This is the third of, I think, what will be four messages. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. And then uh, next week will be our, our last message, I think, in Habakkuk. And then we're going to start into the Psalms uh, for the balance of the summer. I'll preach two more times. And then, as Reynolds mentioned a few weeks ago, I am going to be on a brief sabbatical for the month of July away with my family. We're going to go to uh, visit my folks in California and then do a little bit of other traveling. And so I'll be gone for five Sundays. The other guys will preach from psalms as well and then we'll pick back up in august um maybe with a couple individual messages and then we'll very likely start the gospel of mark in the early fall and we'll be in that for for quite some time so really looking forward to that but here we find ourselves today in habakkuk chapter two and so i'm going to pray in just a moment and i'm going to just briefly summarize where we are and then we're going to get into uh verses six through twenty and this idea of how God receives glory through judgment, which, quite frankly, is not a super popular theme in the American church today, but I think it's especially fitting today as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church body, and where all of us that are believers in Jesus will be welcome to come to this table where we remember the moment when God finally and fully judged sin on the cross in Christ. And so we're going to look at that and some Old Testament words that point forward towards that moment. But you're going to need to help me a little bit today because my, my wife is out of town. She's um, on the way to taking my children to camp. And so I'm a little out of sorts without her. And then last night, the staff team came over to my house for just kind of a staff dinner and fellowship. And um, and my bedtime on Saturday nights is usually about 7.30 or 8, and they stayed until the ungodly hour of like 8.45 or 9 o'clock in the evening, and, um, and I was, you know, stretching and yawning and giving them hints, like, yeah, y'all turn the lights off, but they stuck around, and, um, um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, we played a wiffle ball game out on the front lawn, and um, I have a 20-year-old mind, but a 41-year-old body. Let's just put it that way. Things are breaking down as we speak. I'm a little sore. But let me pray, and then we're going to get into this uh, really uh, weighty passage. And, and we're going to glory in the God of our salvation. And if you're a Christian here today, oh, these words are so rich and so important. The things that the truths that these words point to are so deep and so important and yet so simple. And if you are not a Christian here today, I pray that you might hear a clear explanation of the only hope that you have, which is that your rebellion against the creator of the universe can be atoned for only by the perfect one, Jesus, and his work on the cross. Well, let me, let me pray and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, as we look at these words in this ancient prophet 25, 2600 years ago, I do pray that you would give us focus and wisdom and 
in, particular, in particular, I pray that you'd give me clarity. And that as we look at these words that are heavy and weighty about the judgment that is coming upon these Babylonians, I pray that you would help us make application to our own lives. And I pray ultimately that these words, these very serious words, would point us to the cross, to that day when judgment and mercy met and mercy triumphed over judgment. Help us now to think deeply about these things. I pray for my Christian brother and sisters in this room who are already believers in Jesus that their hearts might be refreshed and encouraged. And I pray, Lord, for my friends in this room who have not yet turned away from their sins and their idols and their self-trust. I pray that today, Lord, you would give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they might turn away from themselves and turn in saving faith towards you for your glory and their eternal joy. I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, again, I've done it the last couple weeks. I think it's probably helpful to do it again. Just a brief little Old Testament history of where we are. Of course, we know that everything begins in Genesis where God creates. But God doesn't just create the world. He creates people. He creates Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of his creation to be his image bearers, our first parents. And they turn away from God. They rebel against God in the garden. And then they are separated from God. They're cast out. And their sin, like our sin, doesn't just minimize their life. It separates them from God and makes them like us because we have followed in their line as their children. It makes them recipients of God's right, just, and condemnation. And that's where all of humanity stands, separated from God, apart from his presence, completely unable to make ourselves right. The narrative in the Old Testament continues where God does not leave us in this ditch separated from him, but he comes to us and he chooses a man named Abraham in Genesis 11 and 12. And he starts to, through this one man, build for himself a people. Not because he was just concerned with one people, which became the Jewish nation, the Hebrews, but because through this one people, he wanted to make his glory shine so that all the nations would come and worship him. He begins to work through this man, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his family, and that's the balance of the book of Genesis. And we find at the end of the book of Genesis where this family of God, Abraham and his descendants, find themselves in captivity. They're in Egypt at the end of Genesis and then at the beginning of Exodus, and they're outside of the land that God had promised them, and now they find themselves captive to this harsh Egyptian empire. But again, God does not leave his people helpless. He raises up a, a deliverer named Moses, who is an unlikely candidate, but nevertheless used mightily by God, who rescues God's people from Egypt, rescues them from that captivity through the Red Sea, where he saves his people through those waters and then extinguishes Pharaoh's army by causing the waters to fall in on them. And so he brings his people out of captivity, out of slavery, rescues them from the bondage of Egypt and brings them into the desert where they wander for 40 years. He gives them his word and he forms his people after he saves them through his word at Mount Sinai when he speaks to Moses and gives them the law. And this word is to form them and make them holy. But still they're not quite yet back where God intends them to be in the promised land that he promised to Abraham years and years ago. Moses eventually dies and then Joshua 
this young man is raised up after Moses' death, and he finally leads God's people back into the promised land, across the Jordan River. Once again, God saving his people, parting the waters, causing them to be finally now back into this land that he had promised them so long ago. But even then, when they're in this land, they've been saved, they've been sanctified, now they're where they're supposed to be, but yet there's all sorts of foreign people that are pagan idolaters in this land. And so God tells Joshua to drive out all of these people. In fact, he tells them to destroy them. And Joshua is full of conquests that are sometimes uncomfortable for our modern-day ears to read. But they're not, it's not that God is for uh, genocide or killing people, but what's happening there in the redemptive storyline of God's mercy with mankind is God is purifying his people by extinguishing all these people who would influence them with false gods. That should tell us how serious God is about the holiness of his people. And so Joshua leads them back into the promised land and they conquer their enemies. But even then, they're still tugged at and they still aren't satisfied with God. And so God gives them judges. And that's the book of Judges after Joshua. And these judges, some of them are good, but most of them are bad. And it's just a cycle of, of, of God renewing them and then falling again, renewal, falling again. And so eventually they cry out to God for a king. And he gives them a king named Saul. And Saul shows early promise, but Saul eventually turns out very, to be a very, very poor king. And then God gives him another king, David, who becomes this great picture of the glory of God's people in the Old Testament. But even David, as great as he was, falls very miserably, commits adultery, and then commits murder to cover up his sin. And eventually his son Solomon comes to power, and he's one of the wisest men that ever lived. But even he is tragically flawed. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divides. So God's people, which we commonly refer to in the Old Testament, is Israel, now divides into the northern kingdoms of Israel and the southern kingdoms of Judah. And it's a divided kingdom. And that's where First and Second Kings are speaking into. And all of the prophets that you see from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the prophets are speaking to the people during this time of the divided kingdom primarily. And the kingdom is now divided. And now God, through one of these prophets named Habakkuk, is speaking to his people, telling them here at the end of this time of the divided kingdom that he is going to judge them by bringing a foreign army, the Chaldeans, also the Babylonians, same people group, that they're going to come and conquer Judah, in this case the southern kingdom, for their sin. And so that's where we find ourselves at this end, really towards the end of the Old Testament. And now Habakkuk is, is hearing these words from God of judgment upon his own people. So it would be like, as I mentioned last week, if a bunch of Christians in America were concerned about the morality and the things that our government were legislating and doing and the, just the general immorality in our country. And if we were to go to God and say, God, deliver us. You see all the unrighteousness going on amongst just Americans. Save us. And of course, our prayer would be that, Lord, you might renew us from within and raise up a righteous leader to cause revival in our country. But that's essentially what Habakkuk is praying to God for at the beginning of Habakkuk. But God's answer is not, like it had been in times past, okay, I'll give you a good king. This time his answer is, okay, I will take care of the unrighteousness within my people, but I'm going to do it by sending this foreign pagan army, the Chaldeans, 
to these, these people that are more wicked even than my people to come and punish my people by, by taking them to cap, into captivity. So it'd be like us praying for God to renew America, for revival in America, and for him to say, okay, I'll judge sin in America. I'll raise up the North Koreans or the, the Iranians or whatever enemy. If you're a kid like me that grew up in the 70s and you had the misfortune of watching Red Dawn and then you couldn't sleep for the next three years and you just were worried about the Soviet invasion... Uh, it would be like in the 70s and 80s in the Cold War, God raising up the Soviet Union to come and smash America. Not the answer that Habakkuk wanted. And so God tells him that, but then as we looked at last week, he tells him that even though I'm going to do this, my righteous people can walk by faith because you need to know, Habakkuk, that I am good. And now we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 6, where God now, after telling Israel or Judah that he's going to punish them through the Chaldeans, now he turns his, his sights back to the Chaldeans, and now he is going to speak words of woe through Habakkuk to these enemies that he's raising up to be his instrument to punish his own people, right? So God has told Habakkuk, I'll punish my people through these Chaldeans, but don't Worry, don't let this cause despair for you, Habakkuk, because I am just and my people can walk in faith and trust in my goodness. And now he says a word to the Chaldeans by telling him, listen, listen, you, even though you're being used as my instrument and don't even realize it, woe is coming to you. So God is proving to Habakkuk in these words that we're going to look at today that he is just. Not only will he punish his people, but he will punish the Chaldeans. So let's read in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? This is God speaking with scoffing and riddles for him and saying, so he's speaking now to the Chaldeans, saying that all of the nations that the Chaldeans, not only Israel, but all of the other nations that the Chaldeans have, uh, have, have ransacked and conquered, eventually they are going to take up together against the Chaldeans and taunt them with this woe. So it'd be like the bully in the playground, who's beat up all the little kids, stole all of their lunch money, made recess miserable all year long for those little wimpy kids in school. And now here on the last day of school, all of the little kids that all year long were being bullied by the bully are going to stand up together and taunt the bully on the last recess. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, listen to this, Woe to him, meaning woe to the Chaldeans, who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. So he's speaking to the Chaldeans. Now you're going to be spoiled for the people that you have spoiled because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. So let's just pause there for a second. I want you to notice a couple things. We're going to work our way through these verses 6 through 20. There's five different woes that God says to the Chaldeans. And and we're going to just end this. We're going to work through these verses quickly, make a few little comments, and then I'm going to end with looking at two truths that I think we can get from this. But I want us to just, first of all, just realize the weightiness of the word woe. I mean, think about God saying to the Chaldeans or to us, woe to you. I mean, that's not a word that we use very much in, in English. Woe, like what distress, despair, 
God's judgment is coming upon you. There's a common misunderstanding, I think, amongst many Christians, especially in our time, especially, I think, in America, where life is relatively easy. We tend to think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment. And then all of a sudden, like in between Malachi and Matthew, some sort of switch is flipped. And all of a sudden, God becomes kind of like a, a sort of a Santa Claus figure, just dispensing grace and handing out lollipops and giving puppies and ponies to kids. Have you ever, kind of, have you ever heard sort of that? The Old Testament God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of grace. But, but reality, that's a misconception. God is gracious. That's his character. He's merciful, long-suffering from beginning to end. And God is wrathful against sin. And so in the Old Testament, we see amazing long-suffering by God being very, very patient with his people, calling them to repentance. But we see at times God temporarily bringing wrath on his people and judgment on his people. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus himself in Matthew 23. In fact, if you just want to get the character of God in the whole Bible, look at Matthew 23 where Jesus pronounces seven woes on the religious leaders of his day. He uses the same type of language, woe to you who lead people astray. And so if you, if you kind of grew up in that sort of notion that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is all grace, uh, really that's, that's not true. <clears throat> God, from beginning to end, in his character is holy and righteous and gracious and merciful and long-suffering, and is both a God of grace and wrath. And so the Chaldeans are getting their due, finally. Verse 9, <clears throat> woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. And so what he's saying here is you Chaldeans that have, that have built your kingdom on the backs of all these people that you have conquered, that house that you've built is going to fall in on itself and crush you. Verse 12, another woe, the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And now listen to verse 14. And I think verse 14 is probably the most well-known, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible and really the, the heart of what we're going to get in today. Listen to this. And as he's pronouncing this woe on the Chaldeans, there's this glimmer of hope on the horizon in verse 14 where he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. It's one type of universalism that the Bible teaches. You know what universalism is? It's this idea that kind of, in, I think a lot of people in the world today sort of hold this general universalism that oh, just kind of, eventually everybody kind of gets to heaven, right? They don't believe in any sort of wrath or punishment for wickedness. And the Bible doesn't teach that. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. But there is one type of universalism that the Bible does teach, and it's that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. There is not one square inch of this universe that not one day will be finally and fully full of the knowledge of the glory 
of the Lord. That means that every creature will know. Kwame read it this morning from Philippians 2. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question, friends, is whether or not that bowing and that confessing will be voluntarily or or involuntarily. There's coming a day when all the world will be filled with the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. The Chaldeans are mocking people. They're, 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 they're mocking their, their, the people that they conquer. And they're, they're really just parading them to, to, to humiliate them. And he says, you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. But then God says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision, which is a way kind of showing just, I'm going to make you naked. I'm going to humiliate you as you have humiliated the peoples that you have conquered. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And in the Old Testament, often that phrase, the cup in the Lord's right hand, refers to his wrath. This wrath of God that fills up and eventually spills out. The cup in the Lord's right hand will eventually come around to you, Chaldeans, like a boomerang. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What he's saying there is a, a repeat of the phrase that we saw up in verse 11. But he talks about the violence done to Lebanon, meaning the trees of Lebanon, and then the, the beast that you've killed. And so it's almost as if God is, he, he's, he's saying there that not only have you killed people, but you've, you've been poor stewards of my creation. You've chopped down trees to make, to make war, uh, instruments of war, and you've slaughtered cattle just to feed your troops, and even that I'm going to punish you for. And then in verse 18, these very convicting words about idolatry. He says to these, I think this whole passage, we can look at the idolatry of the Chaldeans. He says in verse 18, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. So the Chaldeans were great warlike people, and they would make weapons out of metal or wood, and, and they sort of worshipped their strength. They worshipped their ability. Remember, we, we looked back last week at how they... He says that the Chaldeans are like fishermen that, that just catch us so easily with their hooks and their dragnets, and then they, they offer sacrifices to their own nets. So, so Habakkuk is saying that you're, you're like, you're worshiping your own ability to conquer people, and here they're making an idol out of their strength. They're making an idol out of their metal images, their weapons. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so, so in this last verse here, he's He's speaking woe to the Chaldeans for their idolatry, for their trusting in themselves. The folly of their idolatry will be judged. But, but what about, before we move on to the two things that I think we need to think about here, is what about our idols? What about our idols? It's easy to look at the Chaldeans and kind of see that word idolatry in the Old Testament 
and we think about some sort of image that they've built, or maybe we think about today, we think about some maybe Far East or some Buddhist religion where they've got some little chubby guy in a statue or something, you know, sitting in some place. But, but I think God is, the word for us is, is that, you know, we, we've got idols as well. What, what are our idols? In fact, I think actually our idols in our day are actually more dangerous because they're more subtle. They are not obvious things. They are more subtle things that are often good things that then become ultimate things that then become destructive things because we've made them ultimate. This is what uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, you guys know, uh, have heard me reference him before, and he has written a book called Counterfeit Gods. We sell it in the Resource Center, and this book is uh, about the idols of our day and the things that we make into idols. He calls them counterfeit gods. Uh, the, the, the subtitle is Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and Then the Only Hope That Matters. But this is what he, he says about idols, and we have this quote on the screen. You can read along with me. It says, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Boy, that's a convicting and very clear statement of idolatry. And so now, then, God, through Habakkuk, is speaking woe to the Chaldeans. Okay, so let's, again, back up, make a few kind of summary statements about where we are, and then look at two things, and then we're going to receive the Lord's Supper together as believers in Jesus. God has told his people that he is going to judge them. And he will get glory through judging them for their unrighteousness, through these people who are even more wicked than they are. And now he has trained his sights back to these people that he's using merely as a pawn in his, in his effort of sanctifying his own people. And he says to them, I'm going to judge you. In fact, woe to you. Woe to you for your, for your haughtiness. Woe to you for your ruthlessness. And woe to you for your idolatry. And I am going to glorify myself by judging you Chaldeans. And so I think the point of what we've been reading here is that God 
will get glory. In fact, that is the purpose for everything. That's why you and I exist. That's why America exists. That's why Israel exists. That's why the Chaldeans exist. That's why everything exists, to point towards the one whom made it, the one who is the king of everything. Everything exists for the glory of God. And God delights in bringing himself glory through judging rebellion. And so we now have two things that I think we should think about. The first is, is that God is glorified by saving his people through judgment. All right, we've seen that. We've seen that God judges his people. We've seen that God judges his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. We've seen that he, he judged his, their enemies. He judges their enemies all the way back in Exodus, in the Red Sea, when he rescues his people from Egypt. God is glorified by triumphing over the enemies of his people. Exodus 15, a couple verses in, there's this great song of Moses where they sing to God and they say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. So God receives glory when he judges his enemies by saving his people from those enemies. God, God is glorified, but I think that's, that's easy for us to understand. But what could be God's purpose in, in, in even allowing judgment? Do you ever think about this? I mean, I think about this often. Like, why would God even allow sin and rebellion and judgment to happen in the first place? Can't God just be glorified by just being good and causing everything to go well? well? I think that's a valid question, and I actually think the Bible answers it. I think the Bible says things like Proverbs 16, verse 4, where it says that everything has its purpose. Even the wicked have been prepared for the day of trouble. We see all the way in the New Testament, in Romans 9, where God says that he has prepared some vessels for destruction to make his glory known through judgment. Friends, that is a humbling truth. Think of it this way. What I'm saying is, is that God has allowed rebellion and sin and enemies of his name so that in judging them, his glory and goodness might be more profound. Think about how God-centered that truth is. But friends, we see that pattern all through the Bible. Think about it. If God is omnipotent and sovereign and good, he can stop things. He cannot let things happen, but he lets things happen that for a time go really, really poorly so that he can rescue and save and judge wickedness so that it, the display of his glory is deeper, it's wider. Think about it. If we're just going on one plane, now think about this. You gotta, let's just kind of think philosophically here for a second. If God's the execution of God's sovereignty over all that he has made is just on this one plane of everything clipping along like it should be. Yeah, God, God because God is God, will, will, will have his character known and it will be displayed, but, but it's all on one plane. It's all obedience. But in even allowing rebellion, think about this, in even allowing sin and rebellion to enter into his creation and then knowing that he is going to rescue his people from their sin and their enemies by saving them and then punishing all wickedness, what God has done is he has created a divergence between his holiness and rebellion. And now there's a gap, and that gap is 
filled. It brings depth. It brings, it brings depth to the glory of God. Do you see that? Rather than just on one plane of, of just sort of obedience. But now, God and friends, I realize this is a humbling truth and we don't like to think like God of, of God in these terms because we just, we just kind of want to hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's our nature, isn't it? We just want things to be okay. But the world is not okay and it will do good for our soul to know God's purposes and why the world is not okay. To display his glory. Think of it this way. Any of you guys that have ever bought a diamond ring for a girl, which I recommend if you ever want to get her to marry you or some other precious stone or something. Just come up with something. Precious and valuable. Or at least as valuable as you can afford. I remember I was a young lieutenant at Fort Benning and I had a little bit in my bank account and I emptied that joker out to buy Jennifer. Um, maybe it wasn't super wise financially, but it was wise in the long run. Think about this, when you go to the jeweler, right? They got that glass case, right? There's a whole bunch of other diamonds below it. No jeweler worth his salt would ever get a diamond out and put it on top of a piece of glass with a bunch of other diamonds underneath it, right? Why? Because that diamond is going to compete with the shine of the glass and then all the other diamonds Underneath it. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what jewelers do. Before jewelers put out a diamond to impress that young potential groom, they slap down that black velvet, don't they? So that the shine of the diamond is contrasted against the black velvet so that you forget about everything else and you say, whoa, look at that thing pop, man. And in a sense, friends, although no analogy is perfect, in a sense, that's what God has done with sin and wickedness and rebellion. He has allowed it to be the backdrop on the diamond of his grace and mercy and salvation so that when he saves his people against the backdrop of rebellion and wickedness and their own sin, it becomes more beautiful, more glorious to his name. And that's what God is doing here in Habakkuk. Do you think that he could not have stopped the unrighteousness in Israel? Do you think that he could have done, do you think that he could have rescued his people some other way? Do you think that even in your own life, every trial and every sin and everything that you've even internally struggled with in your own life, do you think that God doesn't have some redemptive purpose in that? He does, friends. He does. And his purposes always start with his glory, which is always wrapped up in our good. So God is glorified by saving his people through judgment. Which brings us to our second point. And friends, this is the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of all that matters. And it is especially appropriate given today that we're going to celebrate Jesus' work on the cross. God's judgment, and friends, he judges all. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verse 27, I think, that it's appointed unto all men to die, and after that comes the judgment. All of us will be judged. All nations will be judged. All peoples will be judged. The question is whether God's judgment, and this is point two, whether it is either in Christ or outside of Christ. 
God's judgment is either in Christ or outside of Christ. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read a few words here and then we'll, we'll receive communion together. Romans chapter 3. Verse 9. These are some of the most important words in the entire Bible. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul has been very careful to make the argument that all people, uh, all people stand guilty before God. Whether they are Jews who have the law or whether they are Gentiles who may not have the law of Moses, but they have this sort of general law of God that they could even look into the heavens and see the goodness of God, and that should even point them towards their creator, which should point them towards Jesus. But he says that all of us, whether we're Jews that have rebelled against the written law, or whether we're Gentiles like most of us that have rebelled against just this law that is written in the sky, all of us are guilty. And so getting back to our story in Habakkuk, the Jews are guilty, the Chaldeans are guilty. We're guilty. Americans are guilty. Arabs are guilty. Canadians are guilty. <laughs> Tall people are guilty. Short people are guilty. White people are guilty. Black people are guilty. People from California are really guilty. People from the South <laughs> are guilty, right? Everybody's guilty. And that, that's the argument of Romans 1 and 2. That's the argument of Habakkuk. Israel, you're guilty. I'm going to punish you. Chaldeans, you're guilty. I'm going to judge you. And then verse 14 says, back in Habakkuk 2, it says, but there's coming a day when all the earth will be filled with the glory of God, and God will receive glory through judgment, through judging. And now we have the benefit of looking into the New Testament, which we're going to read here, and we know that judgment is either in Christ or outside of Christ? And that's what Paul goes in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and I'll just add in there, Chaldeans and Habakkuk and his crew and all of us in this room are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, he is talking not only to the Romans, not only to the Jews, not only to the Chaldeans, not only to Judah, he's talking to us. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, meaning human righteousness or ability to attain God's standard, no human being will be justified because we've all failed since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And now in verse 21, listen to these next few verses. They are the heart of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
In other words, what he's saying is, but now, unlike where we were in the Old Testament in the time of Habakkuk and up to the time of Jesus, being made right with God, which came through adherence to the law, which nobody could live up to, now, being made righteous, a way to be made righteous has now been put forth by God apart from the law. And we're going to read about what that is here in just a second. Obviously, it's, it's Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, so this, this way to be righteous, this righteousness of God, not just way, but this very righteousness of God is what the whole Old Testament is about. It's pointing towards, even the law was never meant to be ultimate. It was all pointing towards the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what Paul has just said there is that now God, the fullness of time has come. And now God fully and finally has once and for all made a way back to him through Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether you're a terrorist or whether you're an alcoholic, drunk, public fool, whether you are an adulterer or a cheat, a swindler, or whether you are a self-righteous church kid that has grown up judging everybody else because they're not as righteous as you, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 then says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so what that word propitiation means is that God now is putting Jesus forward to absorb judgment, to absorb God's justice to absorb God's wrath for all those who put their faith in Jesus. Friends, that word propitiation, maybe if you're reading a newer version of the Bible, it might not have, it might say something else in there, but that word propitiation is so important. It's a very unique word that's only used a few times in the New Testament, and it means that God is putting Jesus forth to be the perfect wrath bearing substitute to absorb his wrath to extinguish to take all of his judgment for those that will put their faith in him friends that's the gospel that's what Habakkuk is pointing to that's why Moses exists that's why David exists in the Old Testament that's what everything is looking forward to in the Old Testament pointing towards that time when God would fully and finally vindicate his own glory and vindicate his people by pouring out his wrath for sin on the perfect Jesus who is the only satisfying sacrifice for sin, right? Because here's the deal of Israel in the Old Testament. Like they'll be righteous for a time, but then they sin again. Righteous for a time, but then they sin again. And all of that is pointing towards the futility of human effort. And so what we're reading about in Habakkuk is pointing towards futility to get people to look for the one to come. And now he has come, and he's God in the flesh, and he's perfect. So he's obeyed completely. And God puts him forth as a sacrifice to absorb, to take, 
to carry sin away. That's what he does on the cross. And we are justified through this grace as a gift, verse 24 again, through redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-absorbing, perfect sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's happening here, friend, is that you and I deserve to be condemned. We deserve to be treated like the Chaldeans. We deserve to be treated like Judah. We deserve woe. And so the question that Paul is answering is, well, how is God still holy by letting sinners like you and me get by without suffering woe? And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. I haven't canceled the woe. I haven't canceled the punishment. I've taken the woe that should have been yours and put it on Jesus. Do you see that? And so now, here at this point in the redemptive storyline of God's unfolding grace, all of the Old Testament is pointing towards judgment. Judgment that God brings glory through judgment. But here, fully and finally, judgment is final on Christ, who once and for all satisfies God's holiness. And so friends, if we're Christians today, we didn't slip by by grading on the curve, or we didn't get in because we were born in the Bible, but or born into a Christian family. We got in God's favor because the woe that should have been ours has been placed on Jesus, who extinguished it. And you know what? Here's the deal, man. Because we all sort of grew up in gospel land, we think that that's just kind of, okay, yeah, Brad, tell me, great, Brad, all you do is talk about the gospel. Give me some application on how I can have a better Thursday. Friends, do you realize that that is the point of everything? And there are far too many people in Christian culture in America who have never been in love with and awestruck at that good news and that's why they lead pitiful lives because they just want three or four little leadership techniques or they want four or three to a couple little lists on how to do life better. And the reason why Christianity is hard for so many Christians is because they are not amazed that God poured out the woe that should have been yours and mine on Jesus. So when we read woe passages in the Old Testament, friends, we should read ourselves into that, and then we should look to the cross and say, Jesus took that for me, and that crushes me and exalts God and makes me so grateful that I don't have anything but to do but to worship him and be a better husband and be a better leader and be more humble. Do you see how life and application flows out of a rich and deep understanding of this one crucial thing, which is the gospel? Do you see that? No, no, no. You know what? I'm not the type of preacher you can kind of clap for because I go too long. I know that. And all my little high points just keep going. I get that. And then so half of you want to clap and then it gets weak. Don't give it to me if you're going to give it to me halfway. You know what I mean? But let's, <laughs> let, let, let's just come up with a pack. I'm not that type of guy. I don't have that type of cadence, but I appreciate it. I do. But friends, do you see this, Right? Do you see what's happening here? That God judges the earth. God judges the nations. And God judges you and me. The question is, will we bear the woe? 
Or will Jesus bear the woe? That's how good the gospel is, friends. If Jesus has bore your woe, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Do you see the application of that into every area of life? If God is for you, young lieutenant, who can be against you, even if you get blown up by an IED in a month when you go to Afghanistan? Even then, because this life is not just these 80 or 90 years. If God is for you, who can be against you? You weren't made for just this life. You were made eternal. And if your eternal woe has been satisfied by God himself, friend, what can this world do to you? You who are in a struggling marriage, do you realize that no matter what happens in that situation, if God has taken your woe on his own shoulders, what can this world do to you? Do you see how a rich and deep and robust understanding of the gospel frees us? It frees us, man, it frees us from these 80 or 90 years. And friends, that works its way into everything in this life. So before we receive these elements here today, friends, why, 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 why wouldn't you receive this? Like, why, why, why would you, friends, don't, don't make an idol out of your own intellect and your own understanding. Some of you may be in this room today, and you may want to agree with Christianity. You may be drugged here by a friend or a spouse, and you may be on the verge, and what's holding you back is like some sort of intellectual pursuit. And friends, I respect that, and I'm not I'm not minimizing that at all, but friends, do you, do, what, what, what is the barrier between you and letting your woe be dealt with by Jesus, friends? There, there's nothing separating you from that except your hard heart. So, so look away from yourself, friends. You don't need to figure out all the answers. Have faith in Jesus. Believe in him. Why, why wouldn't you? Why? Like, why would you want to risk that well why would you want to investigate some other god is so good like this bread that we're going to receive and this juice that we're going to receive represents god being killed for us like receiving woe not not because things went awry and god couldn't handle it because remember god has deemed to show the depth of his glory through judgment so he even allows himself in the form of Jesus to be judged for you so that you would be rescued forever ever through no effort of your own and he would be glorified. And well, why? Like, why would you let a few unresolved doubts get between you and God? Like, why would you do that? Why? Why? And what, why? Why? Like, if you're a Christian, why, how, can we, how can we piddle around with silly little idols, man? Like, like God is so good. Like, why do, we, why do we run off on our silly little trinkets and why do we make, why do we keep God at arm's length when he offers us life and joy and only himself which can satisfy? Why, why do we do that? Why do I do that, friends? We need to be reminded again and again of the gospel that he not only saves from woe, but he gives life and he alone can satisfy so, so uh, if you're not a believer in Jesus, friend, I'm not asking you to do anything. Do you see that? Do you see how free the gospel is? I'm asking you to turn away from yourself and look to Jesus, right? He gives you, he gives you faith. He gives you repentance. 
to, to look away. When he, when he moves upon a heart to make it his, he gives it. So look away. Are you hearing me? Do you have ears to hear? Look away from yourself. Like, why, why wouldn't you do that? I, why? Look away from yourself and look to Jesus, even now. And then here in just a moment, you, you can receive this meal with us. Because your woe, your judgment has been taken care of. It hadn't, been just, it hadn't just gone away. It hadn't been swept under the rug. It has been taken care of in Jesus. Look, look to Jesus now, unbeliever who walked into this room. Christian, be reminded again. Look to Jesus now and know that everything is underneath the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus. And all of this happens for his glory and our eternal joy. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Well, let's, let's pray, and then we'll receive communion. Lord, um, I thank you for these words in Habakkuk. Lord, I deserve woe. I, I, am an, I have been uh, such a rebellious idolater in my life, but you, you have poured out the wrath that should have been mine on Jesus. Lord, I, and I confess that at times I'm tempted to dig up old idols. Oh, God, redirect my heart and the hearts of these friends here today so that we afresh would see how beautiful the gospel is and how glorious judgment is and how good it is to be right with God and how that informs everything in our lives. And Lord, for my friends who came into this room who were uncertain of you or where they stood with you or maybe were even just confessing unbelievers, God, would you break through And would you cause them to trust in you so that their judgment happens in Christ? Lord, would you do these things for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen.